0: Hey everyone. Asim here. Carbon Hack is back this year. The hackathon will take place from Monday, March the 18th to Monday, April the 8th, 2024. Carbon Hack 24 is all about redefining the way we measure software to reduce its environmental footprint. At the heart of this hackathon is Impact Framework, an open-source tool that lets you compute and report the environmental impacts of software applications accurately. Here's the challenge In small teams, participants will have the freedom to choose from a variety of prize categories. So, how can you become part of Carbon Hack 24? It's as simple as signing up on our website at grnsft.org forward slash hack forward slash podcast join us for three weeks of exciting challenges where engineers designers and content creators will use impact framework to measure software's environmental footprint we can't wait to see what innovations and solutions emerge from this
1: incredible event see you there Financial accountants, they know for ages uh, that one euro, it doesn't equal to one euro. If one euro is invested or it's in your account, ready to get used, or if you you invest it in fees or in wages, it's not the same euro. And it's pretty much the same with uh, CO2. And we tend to compensate everything. And, you know, I love John Oliver's quote saying that we will not offset a way out of this climate crisis. And this is exactly what is at stake here with this so-called scope four, which is all about avoided emissions. Hello, and welcome to Environment Variables, brought to you by the Green Software Foundation.
2: In each episode, we discuss the latest news and events surrounding green software. On our show, you can expect candid conversations with top experts in their field who have a passion for how to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of software. I'm your host, Chris Adams. Hello, and welcome to another episode of This Week in Green Software, where we bring you the latest news and updates from the world of sustainable software development. I'm your host, Chris Adams. In this episode, we're covering the complexity of carbon accounting, new patents around carbon aware programming from Microsoft, the flight of climate nerds from Twitter or x.com, or whatever we're calling it these days, and where we're finding our climate news instead, Finally, we'll be covering some exciting and interesting events from the world of green software coming up in the coming months. All right, before we dive in, though, let me introduce my guest and colleague for this episode of Twigs. With us today, we have Gail Duez. Gail, I'll hand over to you to introduce yourself. Thanks.
1: Hi, Chris. A pleasure to be here. Well, I'm Gael Duez. I'm the founder of the Green Eye podcast, which aims to empower all responsible technologists, an expression I canly borrow to our host, Chris, when he joined the fourth episode. So, yeah, I aim to empower all responsible technologists within the tech sector and beyond to build a greener digital world one bite at a time. So I guess it sounds pretty familiar to the listeners. <laughs> and I'm also a former CTO, trying to redeem the carbon footprint of its past IT operation, if I dare to say. Uh, I now help tech companies deploy sustainable strategies aligned with the Paris Agreement and beyond the carbon funnel. I also contribute to our community, or at least try to, via public uh, conferences and and workshops on digital sustainability. And uh, having the privilege of living in uh, Rainier Island, I'm also the proud dad of a little daughter who enjoys hiking in its beautiful cirques, like we did last weekend, which is why I'm so energized this week.
2: (laughs) Oh, that's really nice to hear. I didn't actually know about that. So for listeners who may not be familiar with Reunion Island, maybe talk a little bit about whereabouts that is in the world, because it is quite a bit further out than I realised when I first heard you tell me where you were coming from in the first place.
1: Yeah, well, the truth is I'm still mostly working in Europe and with uh, European clients and colleagues. But uh, I live in Renew Island. It's a small volcano island on the north, I would say, north northeast uh, of Madagascar. So I'm based in Africa. But what is interesting is that people often think about it as the tropical island. So, you know, uh, palm trees and beaches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And actually, it's a very, very mountainous island. There is a 3,000 kilometers high peak called Le Piton des Neiges. And uh, 90% of the island is protected for biodiversity issues. Or not issues, actually, because it's not issues yet, but for biodiversity reasons. So that's pretty interesting island to live, even if we're a bit packed around the shore, obviously. <laughs> because pretty much uh, all the center is protected. But it's, it's a beautiful place to hike and, and to do uh, maintaining stuff, definitely. Wow. Cool. Okay. Uh, we'll share a link
2: on various mapping tools so people can see where <laughs> Gail is actually talking about. Because when I first saw I thought, wow, that's amazing. It's like I'm speaking to a Bond villain On the,
1: uh, the first time I saw it. <laughs> I hope I'm a bit nicer than a Bond villain.
2: In a good, Bond villain in a good way. A possibly benevolent dictator of an island, perhaps. All right. Okay, before we digress too far, let's just provide a quick reminder of this podcast, what we do, and I suppose just the usual boilerplate. So this is a weekly news roundup show, and we're going to cover a series of news stories that caught our eyes that both Gail and I basically put together over the last week or so. Um, I realized I didn't actually introduce myself. So my name is Chris Adams. I am the executive director of the Green Web Foundation. We're a nonprofit based in the Netherlands working towards an entirely fossil-free internet by 2030. And I am also one of the chairs of the Green Software Foundation Policy Working Group. So that's my involvement here. And also, I am a regular host for the Environment Rebels podcast and this podcast here. Okay, then. So we'll cover some stories. And there'll also be a set of extensive show notes with links to all the things we discover and discuss all right. So, Gail, I think you've listened to the format before and you've submitted some of these and you've got a good idea what we're talking about.
1: Is there a particular story you'd like to start with first so you can kind of get into the swing of the show? Yes, indeed. I am really enjoyed reading the article from Walgreen Digital, the well-known agency in, in digital sustainability, about exploring the complexity of COP3 emissions and the responsibility of the digital sector.
2: Yeah, this is the piece by I think Marketa Benesek.
1: She's uh, one of the writers at Green Digital, yep.
2: and this piece is called uh, "Exploring the Complexity of Scope Three Emissions Responsibility." And there's a couple of quotes which really caught my eye. Essentially, the whole thrust of this article is about trying to give people who work in technology an understanding of how organisations account for essentially responsibility for emissions, both within their organisation but also outside of their organisation. And this quote really leapt out at me. Basically, she's talking about how it's quite hard for people to get their head around. And the quote I like is this one here. So, in the digital sector, where products are often intangible and widely distributed, i.e. through data centers, telecom networks, travel, and so on, attributing emissions becomes challenging. So, she's basically saying it's difficult to work out who's responsible for some of the emissions when you build a service, for example. She says, like, many companies struggle to define the boundaries of their responsibility and accurately account for these emissions associated with what they do. And she basically outlines some ways of saying, this is how you can use some of the existing greenhouse gas protocols right now to think about responsibility for this, in particular, the 11th part of Scope 3, which is related to like use of solar products. So this is one thing that is really interesting seeing agencies talk about this, because typically, they've said like, no, it's not really on us to think about. And Gail, I'll let you come come in on some of this because I think there's a couple of things that you might want to share on this. And then I'll come back to some of the other parts because I realise you've had to wrestle with some of this stuff yourself as well in some of your work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I always say COP3 is the mother of all battles, you know, and, and just, just to take a very recent example, I was reviewing with a client, a very large te- a European tech company. It's a uh, greenhouse gas emissions yearly, uh, the yearly audit. And as usual, more than 70% was Scope 3 including AWS uh, solutions, of course. So I know that we tend to focus in the digital sector mostly on Scope 2 or actually we want to have the greenest possible energy or Sorry, electricity, because most of the time it's electricity. But the truth is, if we really want to make a move on climate change, we need to consider seriously the scope three for everyone. And, you know, obviously your scope one and two is someone else's scope three. So it goes all the way up on the value chain. I agree. There's another part about scope 4, which we'll touch on a little bit later, but it might be worth
2: just briefly, I realise we've just dived straight into talking about scope emissions, and it might be useful for me to just provide a bit of a primer for people who are new to this field. And like one way that I've used to describe this to nerds is talking about the way that people report emissions for any kind of service, usually in a kind of scoped system if you follow the greenhouse gas protocol. And you can think of it along these lines broadly as scope one is basically emissions from burning fossil fuels yourself, things that go into the sky. Scope two is emissions from greenhouse gases, from generating electricity that you use. And then scope three is this indirect supply chain emissions, basically all the other emissions that happen in your supply chain. Now, the way that I found most useful when speaking to other techie nerds is scoped emissions communicated through the medium of coffee. So if you think of scope one, scope one emissions is burning fossil fuels to make hot coffee, like maybe you burn gas on a stove to heat up water to turn into a delicious cup of coffee. Scope two might be using electricity to heat up a kettle to make some coffee. And then scope three might be you walking into a coffee shop so that you can have coffee. So you're not burning anything yourself, but other people are doing it on your behalf. So there's a whole supply chain associated like that. And what we'll do, we'll share a link into the show notes with some helpful diagrams for this, because this was how... I believe Simon, working on the Green Software Foundation Carbonware SDK, presented this recently at the Linux Foundation. And it's a kind of relatively intuitive way to start thinking
1: about some of this. Yeah, I love it. And just to add something, Please remember that Scope 1 is not only about burning fossil fuels, they are also methane emissions. And and just (laughs) a a quick anecdote, Starbucks' uh, entire uh, greenhouse gas footprint, uh, 20% of it accounts for uh, dairy production. And and obviously dairy, it's not only about uh, burning fossil fuels, but it's also the methane emissions from the cattle. This is right. Yeah, I should have said greenhouse
2: gas emissions, of which fossil fuels are a significant part, but
1: you're right. No but I lo- I love your example it it is straightforward but we tend to forget uh, all the greenhouse gas and CO2, obviously CO2 is the main perpetrator here, so we should focus on CO2 first, but it's good also to remember that there are also uh, players in the game, I would say. <laughs> oh, great. So now that we've spoken about what scoped emissions are, which is probably what we might
2: have done before if we were going to provide a kind of preamble for this blog post, there's another really interesting quote from me, which I found helpful, which is when grain themselves are talking about how they've been struggling with this. And this quote, it says, Calculating Scope 3 emissions is a challenge for us ourselves at Whole Grain Digital. Scope 3 emissions of the products we consume, such as software subscriptions, are really hard to calculate, but it's also not exactly clear whether we should take responsibility for our clients' websites during use. So while technically these emissions belong to their clients or their website's visitors, we also see it as our responsibility to assist in reducing the environmental impact. They say like digital agencies that make polluting websites should take responsibility for this. And the rest of the post ends up talking a little bit about ideas which are kind of beyond your value chain. And this is like the impact that you might induce. And I think they refer to this as kind of scope four. And I've heard other people talk about this as scope zero. And this is a bit of a kind of wild west right now. Because this is essentially referring to the idea that if you're building a website that makes it easier for people to say hire a cab or shop faster then there's an impact from you speeding up that activity. And I think this is something that you've been thinking about as well, right, Gail?
1: Yes, absolutely. And can you indulge me to be the villain? Here? <laughs> <laughs> if I'm a James Bond villain, I'm going to play my role. Uh, please, please, everyone, forget about Scope 4 And I, I really mean it, okay? This is the worst possible naming convention that we could find. I'm really concerned about the discussion around this so-called scope 4, which actually is all about avoided emissions, how the tools, the services you provide to your clients help them avoiding emissions. But when we use scope 4, there's emissions in the same bucket that scope 1, scope 2 and scope 3. And to be honest, I'm a big, big fan of the net zero initiative, which provides a clear dashboard with its three pillars to how company should contribute to the global objective of carbon neutrality and where tons of CO2 doesn't compensate. Because, you know, financial accountants, they know for ages huh, that one euro do- doesn't equal to one euro. If one euro is invested or it's in your account ready to get used or if you, you invest it in fees or in wages, it's not the same euro. And it's pretty much the same with uh, CO2. And we tend to compensate every- Everything And, you know, I love John Oliver's quote saying that we will not offset our way out of this climate crisis. And this is exactly what is at stake here with this so-called scope four, which is all about avoided emissions. And if you deep dive a bit on the net zero initiatives, I love that approach because it's a dynamic approach, not a static one. No company can reach net zero. That's not possible because that's not scientifically Agreed. What can be agreed is net zero in a closed environment. And the only closed environment we're talking about is planet Earth. So company contribute to reaching global objective of carbon neutrality. And they've got three pillars to do that. And the, the first one you beautifully described, Chris, is pillar A, which is reduce your own company emissions. Then you've got another pillar, which is reduce others' emissions. And it can be either by helping your suppliers or your clients with your services or whatever solutions you want to deploy to reduce their own emissions. And this is where we tend to hear now the scope zero or scope four approach. For me, it's really all about uh, avoided emission. And of course, you've got also Pillar C, which is removing CO2 from the atmosphere. And these three buckets should be countered and communicated in three completely separate ways. And if you think about Pillar C, it's a bit like the 1% for the planet initiative. And, uh, some company and believe in marketing people, they will definitely know how to positively communicate on it, could say, you know, we allocate one or two percent of revenue or whatever to financing climate technology to remove CO2 out of this atmosphere. But these tons of carbons, they will not offset anything. And I think we, we really need to be cautious about using three different buckets to track how we contribute to global neutrality. Sorry if I'm a bit Ballistic about it.
2: <laughs> That's okay. We have this podcast to have people with strong opinions and they're able to compete to share them, and our listeners are able to decide how they feel or how they want to respond to that stuff. So, uh, you mentioned a couple of things about measuring the environmental impact of some of this. And I realize that you've also mentioned just before this call that there's some other groups looking at some of this as well. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that in a second with the next story. But the thing that it might be worth just briefly sharing with people is that. The GSG protocol right now is in the process of being updated, and uh, we've shared a link To basically an update from the World Resources Institute specifically about how they're planning to make some of the updates, because they've done a massive survey with with thousands of responses from companies, nonprofits, and groups like that. And we shared some links to basically the presented findings so far and also some of the early things talking about both scope one, scope two, and scope three, and how different companies and organizations are actually saying this is how they should be changed to more accurately represent the physical realities of what's happening in the world. So should we go to the next story, Gail? Because this one feels like it's tied quite tight to what you were just speaking about. This idea of measuring this, trying to come up with some other ways of accounting for the emissions in a particular sector. And this link is from the Sustainable Web Design. There's this introduction of digital carbon ratings that has come out now. And I'll just share a quote from the piece, and then I'll have a bit of space for you uh, to talk about some of the scale. So the general idea is that, uh, the quote I'm going to use is, we propose a simple digital carbon rating system that follows the original principles of sustainable web design and aims to make website sustainability much more intuitive and accessible for a wider audience. And essentially, the short version of this is that they're taking an idea of the average website or looking at a body of an existing data set that is generated by the HTTP archive to get an idea of how large and how small various websites are across this data set. And they've created a kind of rating system based on where these fall in the distribution. So the fastest and the smallest sites are kind of graded like, like an A or an A plus all the way down to an E basically or something along those lines. And this is intended to be used to provide some kind of rating somewhat like an energy star rating essentially. So that if you have a website, you can say, well, we want to be building a at least an A website, or we're at a D, we should be pushing to get ourselves to a B, for example. I think I'd open up for you to kind of have a bit of, to talk about some of this as well, actually before we go into this in a bit more detail, because my organization was somewhat involved in this. And it's been something that the groups have been working on for a while. And I think there's lots of places this could go in. And this is the first time I've seen people really try to do this and create a kind of shared grading system for this. So yeah, Gail, over to you, man.
1: So I love this one because obviously we need all those initiatives. But I mean, to be honest, I always feel a bit schizophrenic about the multiplication of those initiatives and ratings because... Uh, We've seen others popping up uh, around the world as well. And and don't get me wrong. If you're a web developer based in a dark rage state in the US and working in a pickup factory with a CEO watching Fox News on loop, you have my admiration and my full support if you manage to talk about this rating tool and to implement it somehow on your website. So big, big, big kudos. And I think this is why this kind of initiative are great. Still, it remains an awareness-raising tool. Uh, I love the simplicity of the rating and the benchmarking with the HTTP Archive database because it could trigger some healthy emulations um, also. So really enjoy uh, this part, this approach. However, it's based on the single and highly debated proxy for energy consumption, which is data transfer. So for web professionals, uh, I would rather advise people to use EcoGrader created by Mighty Bytes, which has several components and not only page weight or even better, the open source initiative Ecoindex.fr, which also try to incorporate uh, other environmental impacts like water. Now, what I believe is that all this initiative, they're trying to fill a vacuum and this vacuum is the lack of commonly agreed and understood metrics when it comes to how carbon intensive or even how environmental Intensive is a website. And, and this is why the job started with the W3C community under the lead of uh, Tim Frick and especially Lucas Mastalet's lead, the metrics workgroups in this W3C sustainability committee, is so important. We need to find some common way to measure this different environmental footprint based on the latest scientific data available. Until we do have this, I guess the more the merrier, because... You want to approach these issues under different angles, Uh, a super simplistic one like the one you just described in this article, Chris, and it it will be very useful for some people in some situation, but all the tools are needed for uh, professionals to really deep dive on where they would have a, a big impact.
2: I think that's fair. Because this is largely looking at one indicator that has been relatively easy to capture and put into a data set that could be made available. And uh, the underlying data set from HTTP archives. This is also used in the state of the web report that came out last year, which had for the first time a really dedicated sustainability chapter. So in my view, I think this is really encouraging to see this. And having some kind of rating systems is one way to make some of this a bit easier for people to understand there's a couple of things that it might be worth briefly touching on for this because the actual grading is pretty, it seems pretty hard to get an A. So if you want to have an A+, your website needs to be within the top 5% of all the websites that you have here. And pretty much it stops off at like E, which is around 50%. So if your website is the average, then... You have a long way to go just to get up to an A, for example. And uh, this current has been shared for feedback from people to see how people respond to this and see where they can go with some of this. So I need to share that this is an early thing. There is a call to kind of get some more input from this. And people can go to sustainablewebdesign.org to um, use the contact form to actually provide some feedback and share something for this. Uh, The other thing that I'll just touch on is that this isn't the only single way for understanding the environmental impact of digital tools There is also some work with the Green Software Foundation to come up with this metric called the software carbon intensity spec. This is one tool which is currently in use. There's also some work at the end user side, which has been one of the contentious areas. Carbon Trust literally last night said that they're doing some new work to come up with some standards for understanding and accounting for the environmental impact of end user devices because typically, this is one thing that's been very, very hard to use. And they've got some large companies like Amazon and Meta already online, on board for that. So I suspect that's going to be a thing that people see more of. The other thing that we might share, so this is me from the small nonprofit that we work in. We did some work with the Firefox browser to essentially build some end-user carbon emissions specifically into that. And uh, we've got a blog post that I'll share a link to this. And uh, you mentioned ecoindex.fr, a French tool, and uh, EcoGrader, which we've shared some links to there. Now, as I understand it, Tim uh, and the team at Mighty Bytes who worked on EcoGrader, they were involved in the creation of these digital carbon ratings. So they are involved in this and there is an intention to kind of make this some more wider. But there's a trade-off right now about saying, what kind of factors do you include? And how easy do you make this for you to understand? Because, even just moving on from just thinking about money is quite a jump. So when you start talking about carbon and water and the resource depletion from the earth and so on, it's a whole bunch of extra things which makes it really complicated. So yeah, those are the things I might say as a response that might provide a bit of extra context for this.
1: Fully agree with you here. It's it's really this dual approach like you've got communication and awareness tool and this is super important that there are super simplistic, uh, easy to understand, easy to grasp, because you still meet on a daily basis, thousands of people who told you, Oh, really, my website pollutes? I wasn't aware of it. Oh, I I, I didn't even think about it. And then on the other end, you've got web professionals who are already a bit aware of it. And they're they're more like, Okay, but what what can I do? Shall I reduce the JavaScript? Is it a question of image sizing? Is it a question of data transfer? Uh, Shall I Take into consideration obviously uh, the obsolescence of the end user tool, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it, it is a, a large spectrum, as you said, and we need to cover all of this. The, I think the main battle today is really about you know speaking the same language, hmm? and that, that will be awesome if all these tools, at some point, uh, hopefully uh, under the umbrella of the W three C, uh, could agree on, on on sustainable metrics that you you know kind of zoom in or zoom out depending where you are on on this scale. And I fully agree with you that just moving away from money is is a big challenge at the moment.
2: And that actually is a nice link to the next story we had because (laughs) I was not expecting this, but this really caught my eye. So this is a story how $1.3 billion in new contracts led Hewlett-Packard Enterprise to train salespeople in sustainability. So I wasn't expecting salespeople to be the kind of vanguards of sustainability in the technology sector. This is basically a piece that we'll share a link to from greenbriz.com, which is basically, uh, it is a little bit kind of like Puff PC, but it's essentially some folks, uh, Hewlett Packard Enterprise, the people whom we sell loads and loads of servers, they're basically saying we're training our sales team to talk about circular economies and energy efficiency and um, team them up with a sustainability team because we found out that that's a thing that, CIOs keep asking for and they're often not getting very convincing answers from this. And there's a couple of things that I thought was quite interesting is that so salespeople typically tend to work on commission. So they get a base salary and then they get a kind of chunk of their money in the form of commissions on product sales. And uh, there's a piece which talks a little bit about how they're compensating various staff for this or linking sustainability performance to compensation. And this story talks a little bit about how the executive committee are The compensation for them is tied to the company's performance against net zero goals. So this is something that is, in my view, kind of interesting because they're talking about things like energy efficiency, recycling content, stuff like that. And uh, they've also shared a goal, which is they're trying to cut operational emissions by 70% by 2030. So this is relatively ambitious, but the operational emissions part might be the easy part to Actually, hang on, no, we're talking about people who make service. That may not be the case. This very much is a case of where the big emissions tend to fall, is whether it's in their supply chain or whether it's inside their organizational boundary. But this idea of actually building in and actually having the salespeople talk about this gives you an idea of how like, there's need or interest in having some shared language so that we can actually have essentially discussions outside of our little niche,
1: basically. And uh, I think this is something that you've got some experience with as well, Gail, right? yeah absolutely. Let, let me share you an anecdote Last year, I was facilitating a digital collage online workshop for Evernex. Evernex is a pretty big IT company. They specialize in providing IT equipment, you know to big companies. And the attendees were mostly sales and marketing people scattered all over the world. I had literally people from four continents. And during the workshop, they started to get ballistic about it, like super enthusiastic because the digital collage workshop uh, focused a lot on, on bodied carbon footprint, uh, as well as, you know, water footprint and, and material footprint, often called E-MIPS, And they immediately could see the benefits uh, in their sales speech. About, hey, by the way, by renting equipment, by making sure that, you know, we will take care of um, the end of life and we will reuse it over and over and over again. You're actually part of a, a virtuous cycle. You're, you're getting closer of the, much-needed circular economy. And it, it was not even mentioned uh, a link with their commission. It was just like, wow, that's a good sale pitch, and I'm very happy to get all this valuable information because that will help me get more contracts.
2: Mm. All right. You said something interesting about uh, the model people are using. So basically, you're paying to have access to it rather than owning the actual tin itself, basically. That's what they're doing. Was that a trend that you saw,
1: or was that a thing that people already are using right now in this scenario? You know, something is quite funny. When I started to deep dive in digital sustainability, everyone told me about the the massive shift in business model, uh, which is needed from makers hmm? Um, like Apple, Samsung, etc., etc. And fun fact is I started my professional career in the payment service industry. And one of my job was to run a small business unit uh, renting payment terminals because, you know, when you're a merchant, in Europe, in 90% of the case, you rent your payment terminals from your bank. You know, there's kind of the absolute norms. And the fun fact is it provides a clear alignment of needs between banks and merchants. People want to have resilient and long-lasting goods. Bank, they don't want to have to send technicians to repair uh, the device all the time. And you know, the truth is everyone makes money, with it, with this business model. Uh, because last time I checked, banks are not philanthropic institution at all, huh, you see. So <laughs> so I think at some point, a shift from owning uh, an electronic device to Renting an electronic device will become more and more the norm, first in the B2B sector, and then at some point, why not in the B2C sector as well? And that is a dramatic change because you close the loop. And when you design your product, you need to make them easily repairable and easily recyclable or reusable first.
2: Okay, all right. Thanks for that. I didn't realize that that was where you started out, actually, Gail. You also made me think about some of the most recent announcements from uh, Fairphone as well, because they announced recently they're pushing out a phone of the Fairphone 5, the newest one they're talking about. I believe they're talking about having a guarantee of between eight to ten years for a smartphone, which is... Kind of mind-blowing when you consider the kind of yearly kind of obsolescence process that you've typically seen before. We'll show a link to that because that's pretty wild. And that's the thing that's quite interesting with Fairphone in this context is they sell some of the devices, but they also talk about some of the difficulties with managing both a kind of rental model where you're incentivized to kind of make sure that you capture the value and make it come back to also having a thing which allows people to kind of feel like they own it and they can fix it and they can do all these other things because different uh, incentives come into play when you think about an entirely rental-based model. So that's something that we'll share some links for people who are interested in learning how other people are wrestling with some of this.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Actually, I rent my, my fare phone now from, from a company called Common because I really believe in this renting model, but it's more with a professional angle. Uh, And it's true that I think we need to be able to cover different needs from different people. And that's great. I mean, if you want to own your smartphone, what you've got the right to demand is to have it repairable, to have spare parts, to have uh, accessible notice, to understand how to repair it, etc. And if you want to rent it, obviously, you want to be able to update the operating system and not not to face uh, software obsolescence, etc., etc. So... I think it's not a one-size-fits-all approach that we should embrace. And I think Fairphone is doing a very, very good job embracing different aspect of the the spectrum. They've got this 5 years guarantee on material, and now they claim eight years guarantee on on software, which is mind-blowing, as you say. Yeah, I'll share the link to the piece in Ars Technica which
2: showed that because uh, I read it last night and I was, when I was doing some research, I thought, wow, eight years. They've had to use a particular industrial chipset for IoT rather than consumer technology because the assumption around consumer technology is it won't last long enough for you to have this kind of warranty. But it's a good piece and it really uh, caught my eye. All right, should we look at the next know, story?
1: Uh, and just, just, just a side note, Chris, uh, you and I were not that young, uh, unfortunately. So just remember that <laughs> in the ITs, in the 80s, sorry, just... <laughs> so, just, just remember in the 80s that it was uh, very common to own for five years a piece of IT equipment. Actually, the average uh, lifespan was close to 10 years. So, you know, it's maybe it's getting back to what used to be normal and what used to be a sensible thing to do when you know how much energy and materials and water has been used when you build so, 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 this equipment. Yeah, yeah.
2: All right, okay, that is um, thanks you for reminding me uh of the grey hair in my beard, Gail. I appreciate that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, sorry. I don't want to be the villain in this episode. i stop on you. I was very positive here. I've got only nice things to say. And that, that's going to be the same for, for the rest of the show. Sorry about that. I can Chris. dream of going
2: into becoming a silver fox, Gail. That's my dream. All right. <laughs> Shall we look at the next story. Yeah, definitely. Okay. <laughs> nearly, so this one uh, is from Verge.com. This is nearly half of environmental users went inactive after Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter took place, research finds. So this one is a story partly because there have been some questions about, okay, where do you get your news around climate these days and twitter and there was a real term called climate twitter the quote that i'll share with you is this basically almost half of environmental twitter has vanished from the platform that's now called x new research is showing a wave of environmentally oriented users abandoned the site after the takeover according to a study published this week by the journal in trends in ecology and evolution and I share this because we have seen an uptick in essentially climate denial accounts on this. But I figure this might be a nice way to talk a little bit about, okay, well, where are they all going? Where do you find the news? Because I used to use Twitter a load to keep up with lots of news in this particular field. And I found it a bit harder. And I figured, I wonder if you might be having the same experience yourself actually, I Maybe we could talk a little bit about where we are looking instead. So people listen to this podcast, they might find other things that catch their eye or just talk about some
1: of our experiences of what we've seen? I must admit that I've never loved Twitter. I tried. And just the idea of having to describe something complex, most of the time systemic issues in a few hundred words, and um, characters, sorry, I've always struggled with it. So I, I was a very reluctant Twitter user, but I'm not proud to say that today I'm a very intense user of LinkedIn, okay? I know it's not necessarily the best platform ever, but I recall that I follow a lot of thought leaders in sustainability, in green IT, et cetera, on LinkedIn. And there are a lot of people doing a very decent job crafting very in-depth articles, sharing resources, et cetera. I'm not the most happiest person on earth on uh, the LinkedIn algorithm, obviously. So you need to do a lot of um, fine tuning to make sure that... um, uh, it's not post about pack of wolves and how agile <laughs> your organization should be, but I'm, I'm using LinkedIn quite a lot, like a million times more than Twitter. And then, of course, uh, I use a lot of newsletters and, and other other community. Um, ah. I, I, I could mention some of them if you want. So
2: Twitter's loss is LinkedIn's gain, basically in this scenario here. Yeah. So it's not particularly cool, but it is useful, and you get the information that you want to there, right?
1: Absolutely. And and you know, we need to take a bit of time to think and write when it's about climate change or environmental crisis. So I better like the long format uh, than you, you will find most of the time on LinkedIn rather than super short tweet and then all this ego battle, et cetera, et cetera. But don't get me wrong, you've got plenty of ego battle in the LinkedIn comments as well.
2: Yeah, that's what I was thinking about as well. So I'll share some experiences I've had. I've been using Mastodon probably, I started using a bit more of it in maybe October, November. And uh, I've been on mastodon.social and uh, there are some really dedicated instances like versions of something like twitter so there's a mastodon.green which i know that quite a few people have moved to who i used to see being active on twitter there's another one climatejustice.social, social that i've seen a few people being active on as well this is one thing that's kind of nice is that because it's federated you see different groups that you didn't even know existing uh, or like little communities that part is really kind of highlighted rather than just being like climate twitter for example um i also am experimenting with an account on a place called Mastodon.energy, which is where lots and lots of really hardcore energy nerds have been moved to. So the people who used to follow to kind of keep up with the insights there. I've seen a few people there. The other thing that really surprised me, though, was how strong the turnout uh, on Blue Sky has been for loads of climate people. So loads of the people who are not necessarily like super climate techie people, but talk about the kind of climate in the widest term. A bunch of people have moved to Blue Sky, but because you need an invite to get on Blue Sky, it's actually quite difficult to see any of that stuff. And when I realized, oh, that's where a bunch of them are, it really, really blew my mind. There's a bunch of other things that I think are kind of interesting. I haven't really used it very much yet, but this whole idea in Blue Sky where you can pretty much create your own algorithms and there is an easy way for people to kind of create algorithms themselves that you might opt into to follow is interesting because there's a green sky feed maintained by one Ketan Joshi, who is a relatively well-known climate writer, which is also worth looking at. But there's also a few newsletters as well that you, I think you mentioned before as well. And it might be worth just briefly talking about some of that because there's one or two that I found super helpful in this context.
1: But I'm going to mention two because in the first one you will obviously not, not mention it, but the Green Software Foundation newsletter is... Is gold. Huh? And um, I would say the, the the Climate Action Tech newsletter and community as well is gold. The um, Slack workspace of the Climate Action Tech community is where I find maybe 50, 60% of all my resources. So big kudos to, to them, and I, I think it, it's worth having a look at it. The, the issue I've got with these newsletters or these slacks, I mean, it's not an issue, but it's once again um, all, all the, the feeds that you've mentioned, the Mastodon, Green, the blue sky, etc. The problem is it's very easy to fall into information bubble. And don't get me wrong, that's very convenient. I mean, if you want to have scientifically supported information on energy transition or something very specific, how oh, you don't want to enter a debate with some, you know, die climate denier, whatever, et cetera. You just want to be with your you, you know, with your people, with your folks, and then you will have a very in-depth discussion still. I also believe that we need to have these discussions happening in the open space. And today, this is why I was mentioned on LinkedIn and some people are still using Facebook or, or Instagram a lot or YouTube even for these reasons. That It's different because this is where like everyone is. And this is why I believe we should still have some activities going on on the, the main platforms, whether we like them or not. So it's really I would say two sides of the, of the same coin. And, and the, the last one, which is very related to LinkedIn, Facebook, or whatever, is where do professional people meet and they meet in conferences. And this mm-hmm. is also where more and more, I mean, this is why I love when in this podcast you share at the end, at the link to various conferences, is that in every professional conferences, we should be talking about sustainability, we should be talking about climate mm-hmm. change. And once again, I'm going to say... A, Instead of you, <laughs> because it will it will sound a bit less self promoting. But the big kudo to the Green Software Foundation Speaker Bureau to make sure every professional event worldwide has access to speakers that will be able to talk about climate change, digital sustainability, and all the environmental crisis. I think it's very important to be also where non truly aware people are. I think that's fair.
2: I think you do need to find a balance between those two things. So there's one thing I'll share just very quickly. Uh, we'll share a link to the cloud native sustainability landscape that's kind of helpful in my view because this is one place where a bunch of this research has been put into a kind of publicly accessible place. And it's a nice roundup of all the stuff that's happening in this field. We'll share a link to that. There's one story we have left and we're going to do a quick roundup of the actual events we have coming up here. So we will talk a little bit about patents uh, Microsoft filing for patents around grid-aware carbon co- computing and carbon-aware computing specifically. Gail, do you want to briefly touch on this one here? Because the long and short of it is that we've been talking about carbon-aware software for a while, and uh, there is a piece in Data Center Dynamics talking about how Microsoft have recently filed a patent specifically for this. And I figured give it a bit space for you to kind of provide some of your reckons on this as well, because this, in my view, shows that, okay, people aren't just doing it just because it's a nice thing they think there's actually some value inside this. And
1: I think this is something that you were talking about briefly before as well. Yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, we need to make the circular economy and soon the regenerative economy attractive for investors. So hopefully investors in the short future will truly embrace the triple bottom line because of new regulations or pressures from their stakeholders, whatever, et cetera, but you know still in the triple bottom line, there is still the planet and people, but also P, the P of prosperity, which remains so it it will require investments to be viable. so it's a very positive sign to see climate tank being patented. Actually, I would rather have it fully open source, but this is the world where we live in. so I think it's a very positive sign that you know you can make money by doing good things uh, for the planet or the people. And the only caveat in this specific story that we shared is making sure that the impact happens over the entire life cycle. And not only during the usage phase, so it is not that, that what we see sometimes, what I call climate tech distraction. Huh? Or we're going to mm. remove CO two, but at the end, manufacturing and using the the, the device uh, emits more <laughs> CO two than what is removed from the atmosphere. But but once again, it, there is a very positive trend toward all this life cycle analysis. And I know that people in climate tech are more and more aware of it and take care of it, and uh, sometimes even multi criteria uh, life cycle assessments. Okay, thanks for that, Gail. Uh,
2: for people who are curious, we'll share a link to the article plus the patent applications for this specifically. Because, yeah, I didn't know about this until seeing, like, oh, that's why they're talking about a bunch of this stuff. So, Gail, I believe there's a couple of events. Do you want to talk about the first one that's on this list?
1: Yeah, Oh, absolutely. Um, API Days London and especially the sustainability track. So first of all, Asim Hussein, the Green Software Executive Director, will be a keynote speaker. So I'm super proud of it. And uh, I'll have the pleasure to host uh, the sustainability track for the entire day of the 14th uh, September with uh, La Crème de la Crème of uh, UK green IT experts and climate activists. And yeah, some names are pretty familiar to uh, the people listening to the podcast, but we'll have uh, Tom Greenwood from World Green Digital, Sarah Sue from the Green Software Foundation, Sandra Palier from Climate Action Tech, Sandra Asido from The Climate Peach, Robert Price, Mark Butcher, will Lowen, and many more. So I hope that I will see many of you there. It's it's a great event. Oh, wow. I didn't know that Mark Butcher was on that as well, actually. He's a really interesting person to follow
2: on LinkedIn uh, for catching some of this. I do. I love
1: his LinkedIn posts.
2: Okay. All right. Um, That's love for you, Mark, going out. Okay. The other feelings I'll just draw people's attention to briefly. Cloud Native have a sustainability week taking place in October. This is actually a distributed remote event. There's um, a CFP open. So if you have a talk prepared, then there's still space to do it. And it's happening all around the world. We've shared a link for that. So there isn't isn't one particular date that's happening in October. And then finally, there's an event in November that I'll I'll let you talk a little bit about here, actually, because this is one from the GSF.
1: Uh, Gail, do you got this one? my pleasure so it's decarbonize software 2023 so it will be the 16th of november it's an online event and i think that the registration is open and it's really the annual event by the green software foundation showcasing the advancements in green software by the community so i'm really looking forward to watching this one because you know i don't know if you remember in 2022 it was an incredible event where the green software foundation announced the software carbon intensity specifications mm the new Linux training program, etc. And actually, if I understood well, the last week episode of the Green Software Foundation, uh, the SCI specification is about to be ISO compliant. So I expect some big announcement in this 2023 edition.
2: That's good. I'm expecting some good things out of this as well, actually. Thank you, Gail, for covering this. Gail, this has been lots of fun. I really enjoyed you coming on, and I really appreciate you providing all the actual kind of insight that you did have for this. So... Thank you again, man. It's really nice to catch up with you again, and this has been loads and loads of fun.
1: Thanks, Chris. Yeah, it was awesome. It was good to be on the other side of the microphone, man. and true or not, to join your podcast. You know, I can die in peace now. I mean, <laughs> the environment viable.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for that, and uh, I'm going to let you go to enjoy your paradise island for the rest of the day. Okay. Take care of yourself, you. mate. Take care. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Environment Variables on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave a rating and review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we'd love to have more listeners. To find out more about the Green Software Foundation, please visit greensoftware.foundation. That's greensoftware.foundation in any browser. Thanks again and see you in the next episode.